Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sport podcast with sports editor Mike Finch and sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker. So there are times over the last uh, four years of us, almost five years actually, of doing the Science of Sport podcast that I've fancied myself as somewhat of an amateur sports scientist. But then along comes another study that suggests that there's another way to measure effort and uh, look at the way that we are training and uh, different ways that people are training. And today we're going to discuss one of these uh, new ways of measuring. Not that it's new, but it's a new concept that's certainly new to me and I'm hopefully going to be able to get Ross to explain it um, a little bit better than I can uh, maybe describe it here. And as usual, I have Professor Ross Tucker here with us, um, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. For those of you that have been uh, moving across to our discourse channel, um, there's uh, there's there's no Discord on our discourse channel, just to let you know. There's it was a, lot a of- little... There was a little. There was a little bit, yeah. There's been a little bit. We liked a little controversy. But (laughs) um, for those of you that are on our Patreon channel, so if you want to join our Discord channel, where a lot of the discussions are happening around our various subjects that not only appear on this podcast, but are also uh, appearing on our various discussion forums, you can become a supporter of the Science of Sport podcast on our Patreon channel, which is patreon.com and look for Science of Sport. And for a little uh, small fee, you get to sign up on Patreon and that gives you automatic access to what has become a very lively Patreon discourse group, um, which is uh, pretty much posting every single day. Every time I open it up, it actually tells you roughly where you last were when you uh, when you when you had your last visit. And every time I look at that little red line that says last visit, there's about five or six discussions above that every day that I go into this uh, dis- uh, discourse channel to have a look at some of the research. And uh, for those that have been on that channel, you'll see that a lot of the discussion is happening. Not just Ross that's involved in it, but many of the um, experts that are listening to our podcast part of this community are um, doing their own uh, bits of research commenting with lots of credibility around some of the topics we're discussing and pretty much what's happening in the world of sports of science is happening on this channel as it happens you know something appears on the news wires and within you know an hour somebody's posted it on our group so if you want to know what's happening in the world of sports science this is the discussion group to be on Ross isn't it I mean, yeah yeah <laughs> exactly I mean and it's it's only been it's only been in existence for three weeks, and I think it's already fulfilling that mission. And I'm really excited and pleased with how it's gone. Gareth has done amazing work moderating it, yeah, uh, but actually, days, yeah. all the members have been so constructive. We're going to talk today. Our main topic is a is a topic that was suggested by one of the listeners in response to the Louise Burke interview. And actually, the the original question was about the carbohydrates and fats and oxidizing those, and then that 
very quickly became actually what limits my marathon. And if you go to that thread, you will see coaching advice from Kevin, who's gone way and beyond the sort of call of duty to give coaching advice to both the original poster and to Joshua. And so you'll get coaching advice that's worth the price of admission all by itself. (laughs) But then, as you say, there's been a few things in the news and they are up there within an hour of them coming out. Not not general news stuff, but the technical side of sport that we all love um, and the, the the patron community then discussed it on discourse. And so you'll get a lot of good value there. There's a few topics. We can't do justice to all of them. So instead of listening to us natter on about them, rather just sign up on Patreon and go to discourse and you'll get 10 times more than you're getting from us on the podcast. Yeah, it's fair. Um, I know that you have some plans to bring out a little section mm. on our discourse channel where people can doing, I think you called it rapid relevant research. Yeah. I love alliteration, by the way. I floated this last week and I was going to call it rapid research reviews, but then it's like, it's not reviews, it's your research. So it's rapid and it's relevant. And what I would really like for you to do, because I know many of you listening to this are either scientifically minded, perhaps as coaches, or you are literally also like I am a scientist who's doing research. And I have a frustration with the scientific journals because they are the gatekeepers of research which is in one sense good but also not so good because it keeps a lot of people outside and especially in our field of sports science it's great that people can actually engage and discuss and talk about applied sports science so what i'm inviting you to do is if you've got research whether it's been published or not is submitted on discourse using a standardized sort of template maximum one thousand words doesn't have to be that long if you want to be more concise under certain headings and so give us the title tell us if the study's published already so it could be something you had published in the american journal of sports medicine and now you want to translate it so that it gets read more widely by end users other scientists and coaches give us the background and rationale in other words, why did you do the study what was already known and what was your question then tell us methods so that people can understand what you did what you measured what you controlled for who you did it in for instance as exactly like you'd write a scientific paper mm-hmm. then what you found and please include at least one and up to three figures or tables to help illustrate what it is you found and then give us the discussion and include in the discussion some limitations so i really am excited to see it and what you're doing is you're sticking out in the public what you've done your research on so that the ultimate beneficiaries of that research can look at it and there'll be scientists on the on the discourse i know there are already and we'll not critique but question you know what what is it that you controlled for how did you measure this did you manage to figure out the ordering effect whatever like you put it out there and let the community discuss it i think it'll be quite fun and more technical but but relevant right that's the point it's rapid and it's relevant and it's your research so yeah. it's set up there now for you to submit well, there we go. So if you are uh, on our discourse channel and you are interested in uh, taking up that offer, um, go for it. It should be very interesting to see. And uh, if those topics are really exciting, obviously we'll have a chance to talk about them potentially in a podcast down the road um, because I think any new research is always um, something interesting. One thing I've discovered about research and actually having a discussion with somebody about the interview that we did just before the Louise Burke in- interview where they talked a bit about the effects of fasting on all sorts of metrics um, for cyclists, in other words, whether you fasted or did fasted rides in the morning or whether you did um, uh, carved rides in the morning. And what, one thing I found that was interesting about that is that every time there's a bit of research done, there's always room for more research in that area. You think, well, if somebody's reached a conclusion about a particular topic, 
it always seems to me that that's one conclusion now, but that can always be debunked based on sample size. So there's no, it seems like for me, sports science is one of those subjects where its, it's evolution continues and will always be that way. Yeah, that's because when we measure things, even even what appear to be simple physiological concepts like VO2 max or performance, it's so complex in the, in the function of so many factors that all converge on it. Mm. So you're dealing with complex systems. And complex systems are highly sensitive to the context and the specific circumstances in which they're assessed, right? Mm. So what you will find in good research is that it will answer a very specific question but is quite narrow in its application of that finding externally. And it takes, that's where the wisdom of the scientist or the coach comes in, is how do you apply what is quite a narrow research finding to more broad concepts and populations. And whenever you read a paper, you should always, in the discussion, you should always be aware, are these scientists themselves disclosing limitations? Are they aware of the of the constraints of their own research study. Because if you don't see that, then they're probably overreaching a little bit. So it does move quite slowly. The one thing I would caution listeners and everyone against is this this idea that science is never perfect and there's always flaws or limitations in the methods, the results, and the way the studies are done. That doesn't mean that science swings wildly like a pendulum from one side to the other. So yes, it's debunked, but I would prefer to think of it as it is evolving, mm. incremental knowledge gains. So, for example, we spoke to Gorka about fasting and training with high or low glycogen in order to try and achieve certain adapt metabolic adaptations. But he did that in a very specific population of very highly trained elite cyclists. Mm. A relatively That's, small sample right. size. Yeah. Now, a study might come out in future on not such well-trained cyclists, maybe our kind of level, and it would find something different. That doesn't debunk him. It mm. adds to him. You, you understand why? Yeah. Because he's asked it in a very specific cohort, and the next study is asking it in a slightly different cohort, and that difference is the reason for the different findings. So mm. you don't necessarily replace one finding with another you rather you're building a puzzle with millions of pieces and every single one just has to be placed in the right orientation relative to the others that's the point I, I guess if you're somebody working for instance in a professional team like Gorka was um, and is he when do you say okay we're gonna we're gonna now use these findings of his study and we are no longer going to put riders on any kind of fasting ride regimen because of this research when do when do, is there a time that you can say right this is now credible enough for me now to institute this institute this practically into my team or my schedule i think or is that a it sounds I, like an open-ended question it, it is but actually like let me let me like turn it right around and say in the real world of elite especially elite sports science the they're already doing what the research will confirm or refute in a year or two's time. Right. Gorka hasn't waited for that study before he's moved. They've moved, and that's why they've done the study. Right. Because because in the elite world of sport, you can't wait for the lag times on research. Like they're it's going to take be at the sharp end. The planning phase takes a few months. Then you've got to get ethics approval. Then you've got to recruit, do the testing, do the analysis, write the paper. You've gone fifteen to eighteen months since you first thought of the idea, mm. and in those fifteen eighteen months, everyone's moved on. Mm. And so what's, ha what's happening in the real world is that coaches and even doctors and scientists are already doing things that will then follow them. So the lead is taken in practice and the research tends to trail behind it. Yeah, okay. I thought it might be the other way around, actually. That's why I was No, uh, like in, in, a, like in so, yeah. so some areas it is. Mm. So like in medicines, for instance, yeah. 
you're not using medicine and then hoping to prove it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in the world of sports science, that is sometimes, yeah. and sometimes in sports science that happens too. Like you have to, supplements for instance, there was a conversation on discourse about a specific substance supplement that hasn't got FDA approval and there's never been any testing on it. And one of the members was asking, should I use it? And then the answer is no. <laughs> That's not a situation where you, you use it and then test. You know, It's not like yeah. shoot first and ask questions later. Like yeah. you actually want to wait. Mm. But there are many other instances where they are in the field and for them, let's say it is that cycling team, performance is so imperative that they are constantly trying things in the field and trying to learn, did it work, did it not work? If it worked, do more. If it didn't work, why? Change it slightly. Mm. And they're, they're almost, and I used this word before, like it's Darwinian sports science, is if it works, it survives to the next generation. If it doesn't work, it's extinct. And so what then tends to be done is what worked. The danger is if they're not aware of their own biases, then they, they don't pick up why it worked for the wrong reasons potentially, mm. or they get the wrong explanation for why it didn't work and they go off in the wrong direction. Mm. But generally it tends to be quite self-correcting. Yeah, yeah so that, it's, a, it's a really interesting space. The, the sports science is often playing catch up to the practitioner. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And in fact, we'll talk about it, it, that. I guess it makes sense to some extent because if you want to be at the sharp end, you want a competitive edge over your right. rivals. You need to be a little bit ahead, even there's even if there's a risk of it not necessarily working. And you have to be pragmatic about that because that's exactly what it is. Is there's an opportunity cost of not doing it. Mm-hmm. So if 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 the if the hypothesis is that a certain dietary manipulation, whether it's denying carbs or adding carbs, eating cocoa pops, for instance, before riding. If the hypothesis is that that's going to work, you you go for it on the hope that it works. But you have to be eyes wide open to understand, is there a risk to doing this? And am I aware of that risk? And am I able to quickly react to that risk so that if I see that it's being realized, I can stop immediately? And so I always give the advice is you've got to do a cost-benefit analysis. You've got to say, right, what's the benefit I'm looking for, the upside? And what's the potential cost or the downside? And if And if the cost or the downside is at best equal to the upside you shouldn't do it because the the best case you're hoping for is nothing why would you waste your time but if the cost is potentially smaller than the upside then of course you have to proceed and that's why they all proceed with diet and then have to just you just have to get your failures in early i guess is the point in that environment and interestingly when we get onto the one of the other news topics the mouth guards you'll see one of those examples in practice and we were criticized for it for doing it in this order you have to act before the research comes because otherwise you're too slow yeah 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 all right, so let's move on to some uh, other news. And uh, we've got quite a few little uh, stories. We don't want to dwell on them too much because we want to focus on our main story today around this issue of uh, VO2 max, which is really quite exciting. So stay tuned for that. But uh, a little bit of news. Um, this is the news coming out of the climbing world. The International Federation of Sport Climbing has introduced, in fact, they're the first federation uh, to introduce comprehensive regulations related to relative energy deficiency in sport, REDS, which we talk about, with the implementation of a new event policy for athletes ahead of the 2024 season. And I think let's give this some context. Why potentially is REDS an issue in climbing? And maybe you can explain a little bit about the decision because there's a whole bunch of things they want athletes to do in terms of filling out questionnaires mm. and that sort of thing. But why is REDS an issue in sport climbing? Because climbing is so heavily weight affected. Uh, it's really power to weight, strength to weight. Can I hold myself on a wall and pull myself up the wall? And so weight is a massive disadvantage. And so then REDS develops because 
Reds is fundamentally a condition that's created by a sustained period of relative energy deficiency. In other words, my intake is considerably below my use. So in other words, sport climbers are trying to get as light as possible to improve their performance and therefore not eating, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and so there would be a relatively high prevalence of disordered eating to the point of massive restrictions on fuel intake to try and drive that weight loss. But at the same time, they're doing training. And so you've got high energy expenditure on one side of the scale and almost none coming in on the other. And you very quickly create this deficiency. And then that causes all kinds of medical problems, particularly but not limited to women. So, for instance, and we discussed this, I think we interviewed Trent Stellingworth on this specific topic. And we also spoke to um, Mila Boone about it. And you end up amenorrheic with low bone mineral density, bone health is compromised, hormonal functions compromised, sleep is compromised, everything, metabolic health is compromised. So sports, sport would be well aware of this. And the sports that are affected, of course, other than climbing, would be things like cycling, running, swimming, because of the weight influence on performance in those. Yeah. So climbing has gone ahead and developed a policy that's now going to require athletes to show that they are don't have <laughs> reds, which is really very interesting and very proactive, but maybe difficult to implement. It'll be interesting to see how well it goes. Because they've tackled it in a number of ways. First of all, they've asked athletes to fill out two short questionnaires. But obviously, that can be manipulated if athletes need it to. But they've also asked national federations to issue, issue each athlete a health certificate um, or request more testing be, be, being provided. And then there's another thing where they want the International Federation for Sport Climbing to initiate random and focused testing of the parameters, including BMI, heart rate, mm-hmm. etc. So d- does it mean that they're going to say... If you have a BMI, for instance, lower than X amount, you are potentially suffering from reds, or are there a whole bunch of criteria that define whether somebody has got reds? And then essentially what they're saying is if you are potentially suffering from this, they will stop you from competing, I'd imagine. Yeah, and there's an interesting, there's a few interesting things that we'll put into the show notes. One of them was shared with us by one of our listeners, Julia, in response to it, and it's an article from UK Climbing which describes it and they actually have some interviews with a climber who talks about what a problem this had been and in fact before i even answer your question one of the most interesting things i saw in the coverage of this was that the international climbing federation almost was pressurized into doing it by its own athletes who said you need to do this which is fascinating because because the athletes are effectively driving an initiative on themselves (laughs) and it tells you almost that they don't think that it's possible to be successful without it because otherwise they would each do it independently of the policy. You know what I mean? Like if I'm a climber, I'll just say, well, I'll look after myself. I won't develop reds. I'll just make sure I eat really well. But they know that if they do that and no one else does, they can't climb as well. <laughs> yeah. So performance is in opposition with health. And the athletes knew it. And that's why they put pressure on the, on the climbing body, which is really interesting. So what they then did, and there's actually a document you can get on this. I was just trying to pull it up, is... They've created a flow chart where two questionnaires, a BMI, heart rate, and blood pressure, are the first screening tool. If that's normal, then you're cleared to participate. If it's not normal, then you go into further testing. And that further testing is bone density, measurements of thyroid function, cholesterol, testosterone, and an assessment against a growth chart. That then drives the next decision that is made where you are assessed as being 
okay, green, no risk, yellow, orange, or red. That data is then shared with the International Climbing Federation. If you're green, you can participate. All others get assessed by someone within IFSS, and then they're either cleared to compete or they are told to abstain from competition. So we'll share the document. It's actually quite a comprehensive document with a number of citations. You can see the questionnaire that's called the LEAF for female and the LEAM for male. So there's different things that get done. It's a it's going to be an interesting because they'll have to have a team of people who do this, the screening. So it's interesting. I actually emailed them and I said, listen, I've seen this. Would you like to come on the podcast and discuss it? And I never heard back from them. So that's why we're discussing it without you guys next time I reply. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's possible that something like this could roll out into sports like athletics? Because we have had issues like this in the past. And then even cycling. I mean, there are obviously concerns where power to weight becomes a, a measure of success and cycling must be one of those sports where the risk of reds must be reasonably high yeah absolutely and i remember looking up at the time that this came out like whether the prevalence of reds in climbing was necessarily that much higher than other sports mm. and it's not so they are the same the highest incidentally gymnastics i left that off my list earlier i was going to say that was yeah, one of the ones yeah. that so, i thought might also be at so risk add that yeah. to the list but yeah you're right like especially in adolescence um, and in res again can't make the point enough that it's not exclusively a female condition but it does tend to affect females and present differently in them in quite important ways so yeah that's the that's the question now is do other sports follow the lead it would be quite difficult i would imagine you know some questions are at what time of the season do you need to be screened because a cyclist could quite easily develop risk factors in the course of the season if bmi and blood pressure and heart rate and disordered eating assessed by questionnaire are the factors that might look quite different in june for a tour de france cyclist compared to february yeah so when are you cleared are you cleared just before competition because that would create a logistical problem for cycling imagine 180 odd cyclists having to be screened like this in a short window so there's some practical things that those sports would have to deal with <laughs> who who would do it and who's responsible for it in running? If you're a marathon run in a big city marathon, you're not competing under your governing body. Is it is a New York marathon has to do it? So there's a few mm. issues that those sports would have to iron out that maybe are different to the cycling context, but nevertheless, those are this is an important conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I guess I'm the part of me that finds it difficult to see how they can practically do this is they would obviously need to set up a set of parameters which then define but i imagine you can do that if you look at if you look at the definition of reds as a condition you'd be able to say the following conditions indicate the person is suffering from this condition therefore they have it because there will be some yeah. element of subjectivity to it i would imagine quite a large one and in fact yeah. there's a whole medical screen if you've identified a young athlete or any why young i don't know why i said young if you've mm -hmm. identified an athlete with these risk factors the actual process now is hormonal screens oftentimes they tend to have very low iron levels amenorrhea you've got to actually do quite a comprehensive medical screen behind this so really what they're introducing here is a screen and there are subjective components some of it's self-reported because you've got to do these questionnaires athletes are pretty good at knowing what you want to hear yes. and they'll tell you that it's say they'll manipulate especially it. especially for stuff like this because they mm. can they can anticipate the consequences of one answer versus another so that has to be managed as well but you know what I'm, I'm i want to be almost sympathetic to climbing because you can punch holes in this 
but actually it doesn't need to be perfect. But what it is going to do that is good is it's going to create so much awareness. Yeah. Because now the, the mere fact that you've got to go through this process and what it's effectively doing is it's screening you where if you're considered medium or high risk, it's putting you in front of a doctor. That alone is going to be helpful. In fact, even before that, the process of being screened is going to create awareness, knowledge among competitors and coaches, um, doctors potentially who you'd think would be aware but aren't aware. It's not front and center for them. And so the awareness that's created probably is going to have the greatest benefit for the climber. Mm. And it doesn't, you see, it doesn't need to be perfect to do its job. It's yeah. just, it's, and I'm sympathetic because in rugby as well, you can punch holes in the way that the rugby, both codes, the rugby codes, but union try and manage concussion with screens and so on. They don't have to, ideally you'd love them to be perfect, mm. but they don't have to be perfect. It's not, it's not worthless because it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, just to wrap up that conversation, this is the quote from the president of the International Federation of Sport Climbing, Marcus Scolaris. He says, the new system underscores our commitment to the health of our athletes. The policy will not help us, not only help us to determine which athletes are most at risk, it also helps raise awareness of the issue, provide help to those who need it and ensure that the rights of each athlete are protected, which is kind of what mm. you were saying. So, yeah. And and in fact, the article that Julia shared with us, Slovenian Olympic gold medalist Janja Gar it's appealed to them to put eating disorders and reds on top of the agenda asking do we want to raise the next generation of skeletons and there's a twitter post that she's posted encouraging I and mean, again that's why it's interesting that they are the ones who've driven it because as i say it's it almost has echoes of like if you can't if you if if they didn't do something about it, the sport the sport wouldn't be able to continue without it happening and the athletes have said let's draw a line here and let everyone get treated equally to stop because otherwise yeah it's just it's just it's interesting to me that they've almost positioned the athletes have recognized that reds might actually be performance enhancing mm. but and they're incredibly unhealthy and so they've yeah. come together and said no 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 let's we need to stop this hmm. right fascinating um now something a little bit closer to home for ross in particular because uh, for those of you who follow our podcast you'll know that ross's day job um, is working for World Rugby and a lot of the uh, changes and uh, things that are happening in World Rugby. So this is a, a subject which um, has obviously been doing the rounds. We've discussed it on our podcast before, and that's the smart gum guards or gum shields, as they've been known, that have been introduced recently to the elite level of the game, and there's been some discussion. And for just very briefly to kind of outline it, obviously these gum guards allow for people to check via various devices whether somebody receives a concussion and then if they have received a bad concussion they are then no. taken off the field well there we go i'm glad you're here because you can explain it probably better than anybody else so i can't stress i can't stress enough that the, the gum guard is not measuring a clinical outcome it's measuring a potential it's it's measuring a head acceleration that may contribute or cause a clinical outcome right. okay but this Again, like semantics, cannot no, like <laughs> no. really, really important distinction that the gum guard is not at this point or any foreseeable point in the future diagnostic of a concussion. All right, measuring the head acceleration does not draw a straight line to saying this player is concussed. A high head acceleration, whether it's linear rotation, does not equal a concussion, and a low head acceleration does not rule out a concussion. Right. The concussion will still have to be diagnosed on the basis of clinical signs in the player or the athlete. So you still need to do a clinical assessment. Has the player lost consciousness? Does the player show signs like ataxia? Once I get that player off the field, 
does the player present with symptoms that suggest concussion, like headaches, dizziness, nausea, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity? Are there memory problems? Are there visual tracking issues? Are there balance issues? That's where the concussion is diagnosed. So how do so no. then how do you define what the god does? Is it so, is it a tool to help pick up potential concussions? Yes, it's a tool that to help identify which players have had very large head accelerations and then use it to put that player in front of a physician who can then do the clinical part of the screening process. So they are effectively a second set of eyes to to add, not this is key, add to the screening process, not to replace the identification of right. the human eye with a objective measure. Because everyone is everyone is like super tempted and gets almost overexcited about this idea that we can have an objective tool to pick up a concussion. It's really exciting to have that. And it's necessary, but it's not attainable. So in other words, what people are suggesting is that suddenly a blip comes up on this monitoring device saying there's been a, a an acceleration of some kind, therefore you're off because you've automatically got concussion. It's not that's not the case. And yes. obviously you'd want to be able to develop things like that, but you can't do that at the so moment. The, yeah, so the way that World Rugby has done it is based on two years' worth of data at various levels of the elite game in various competitions. We gathered 76,000 or so head accelerations. And we said, right, in general, but not specifically, but in general, the higher the head acceleration, the more likely there is to be a clinical consequence to it, right? Now, at some point, you can set a threshold that then says when this player exceeds this linear and this rotational acceleration, we think it is prudent to take that player off the field and put them in front of a physician who can then run the clinical screening process. In other words, let's not wait for the player to have an impact that reaches clinical thresholds, causing that loss of consciousness or ataxia, tonic posturing, whatever it is. Let's get the player off just because we know they had a really large head acceleration. So it's a pretty severe head acceleration. Take them off, put them in front of a doctor, and then let the concussion diagnostic process run its course. It's not to say that you are concussed because your head acceleration was large. And this opposite is equally true. It's not to say that you are not concussed because we didn't measure it. Mm -hmm. So when we say now in Six Nations, 75 G and 4,500 radians per second squared, that's the linear and the rotational component respectively. If you come with 65 and 3,823, I'm not saying you're not concussed because your head acceleration wasn't really high. We're saying you still might be. And so we, we are adding to the identification of potential concussions by using IMG. But the diagnosis is not changed at all by it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you say IMG, what do you mean? In, instrumented Inst- mouth guard. Instrumented mouth guard. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little accelerometer. I often that, use that acronym and I will yeah, use Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a typical mouth guard where the technology is now improved to the point that you, have to, you can put a little accelerometer inside it without making it bulkier and bigger. And then it's really tight on the teeth. This is an important concept because... There's a skin patch you can wear behind the ear. You can have helmets like they use in American football and has been discussed now in the context of cycling. Same, mm-hmm. same well, issues. We'll get, to that, we'll get yeah. to that shortly. But the tooth is the best place because you get a really tight fit. It's closer to the brain, so you get a coupling between what's happening at the tooth and the brain. And you can, using certain engineering models, you can try and infer what's happening in the brain as a consequence of what you measure on the tooth. And so that's the tech that has allowed this to now start happening. But again, I can't emphasize enough. It's not 
It's not intended to be diagnostic. And okay. among, honestly, the amount of time that we've had to waste in the last four weeks f- from people who are frankly are arguing in bad faith about how this mouth guard is being used and what it's actually measuring and what it's not measuring, it's just incredibly frustrating. There was a piece in the BBC came out yesterday in which a number of people are quoted and what they are implying or accusing is either imagined or like literally made up as <laughs> and frankly dishonest because it's been corrected so many times that it's not being used diagnostically yes we do measure all head accelerations not just the small ones we do go above 60 g's and so on with this because yeah, that's been the criticism what yeah you put out some graphs which indicate 60 is the upper limit and 10 is the lower limit where yeah, but that's that's people. And I mean, you started this podcast saying you're not, not a scientist, but I showed you the graph and you knew what it meant straight away. So you either, to, to misread the graphs that have been published in this research, you either have to be absolutely scientifically illiterate or you have to be dishonest in how you explain them. Because <laughs> the, gra- the x-axis of the graph is literally showing you at 10, 20, 30, 40, greater than. You know, everyone knows what the greater than sign looks like. You know, the little shark mouth is <laughs> pointing to the left. So when, when we're saying that the propensity or the incidence of head accelerations greater than 60 is 0.1 per player per hour, we are reporting above 60. That's obvious, right? Mm. You won't believe how many experts, and I'm making air quotes, are saying that we've now excluded and failed to report above 60 because mm. the graph only goes to 60. The, the graph is showing greater than, guys. Mm. Like, and now you know it. You can actually accept that it's the case, mm. but no. Because mm. <laughs> the story is actually the story is actually titled "Smart Gum Gum Shields: Why They Were Introduced and What More Can Be Done." And I think some of the input is coming from people saying, "Well, rural rugby is doing this. There are some flaws, as we've already discussed, but are they doing enough? And is this their solution?" But and they even talk about the fact that the the, the research was commissioned by World Rugby mm. at various universities and saying that there's obviously a conflict of interest there, but. Again, that doesn't make sense because if World Rugby are looking into the idea of how effective these gum guards can be, of course they're going to commission that research, aren't they? I mean, Who, because World Rugby is being told all the time and doesn't deny this, is fully accepting of the responsibility that World Rugby has a responsibility to, to, to conduct research to try and understand head impacts, head injuries, brain injuries in the sport. And so when the mouth guard comes along and people say, actually, this is a cool tool that we really need to use, Who's funding that if not for World Rugby? Yeah. And these, these studies are expensive. We're talking mid-six-figure pounds, yeah. the, the studies that have to be done because the devices are not cheap and the logistics and the time of all the experts. And so two years, three years ago now, when, when it all began, sort of as we were coming out of COVID, we said, okay, let's find the best engineers in the world. And Stanford University had this biomedical engineering department. That's the guy. Go there. Rawson, I think it is. Find the biomechanist and the engineer down in New Zealand, in Otago. Who's the best guy in Leeds? Who's the best person in Belfast? And we said, right, these are the people. We'll go to them and say, we'll facilitate this. Because you see, someone has to facilitate access to the elite players, the clubs, the unions. So you're going to go to New Zealand. You know, the biomedical engineer in Otago University is not going to knock on the door <laughs> of the CEO of New Zealand Rugby and say, hello, can I do some studies? Mm. So, so World Rugby has to facilitate it. So it has to kind of be an active participant in facilitating the research. And then it's its main funder. Mm. But you go to those people because they are the engineers. I'm not interested in a nurse in New Zealand who thinks he knows everything about mouth guards because he did a study 15 years back. Mm. I wanna f- who's the best person in the world? Okay, let's bring those people together mm. and then just say to them, you go do it. And that's what's happened here. But yeah, the, 
And again, it's the same people criticizing the funding are going to criticize when there's no funding. Yeah. The same people who've criticized the the publication of the data the way it was will criticize if it wasn't published. So this is a have your cake and eat it too moment. I mean, just briefly wrapping it up. I mean, now we've had instances of people um, being taken off the field. We had the Scottish first, soccer. First one in the Turner, men's yeah. game. We had 20-odd in the women's competition in October, November. No one was talking about it then. Why? Right. Because women's rugby? <laughs> yeah. But now it's men's rugby. Everyone wants to talk about it, which is which is great. But I just want to make the point, like we've been on this for a few months now. <laughs> but, but yeah, Turner was the first one in the in the game two weeks back. And and, and what what do you know so far? Do you know that it is picking up? I mean, was he, for instance, concussed? No, well, we know he wa- He came back on the field. He, he went off for the screen. He passed the screen. He came okay. back and he played. He wasn't... So, so that, that was, was a prime example of somebody that was picked up as a potential concussion. The HIA then mm. showed that he wasn't back on the field. Yeah. yeah. And, then he d- and then you see it's not just the time of the screen, right? Then he has the, he has the head, in- head injury assessment two, two hours after the impact and two days after. So that, that mouth guard signal has meant that that player is now being seen on three separate occasions by a team physician. Yeah. And yes, a lot of the time, probably more often than not, the player will not end up concussed. But it surely it is prudent and better to have that player in front of a doctor than not when you know that they've had such a large impact. And by the way, the, th- the thresholds that were set... We spoke about this last week in our interview when, when Gareth actually asked me, have we set them too high? Those have been threat set with the intention of approximately or typically one per match. Yeah. Now, this, this lot, the, 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 the sort of peanut gallery, they will accuse of now setting it so high that it's irrelevant. But what do we want? Do we lower it and we get 10 a match? What would happen then? Mm-hmm. We'd, it would be rejected instantly by the exactly. stakeholders in the sport. Half the players wouldn't be on the field. Correct. Yeah. You'd, you'd have a, and I've made this joke too many times, but a revolving door in and out mm. of that medical doctor's office for, mm. for mouth guard. So you have to be prudent about this. You can't, yeah, we, it would be wonderful to test everyone who has 50 Gs and 3,000 radians per second, but then you're going to get dozens in a match. Mm, yeah, for sure. So you got to be, ca- so that's where it was set. Where it has eventually landed is the 99.8th percentile, which means literally two in 1,000. So it's every 500th on average. So the player who goes off for this is literally would be expected to make 500 tackles before they'd see one acceleration this high. And, and I, that is so yeah. high that nobody out there who in good faith purports to be an advocate of player welfare can say that that player who's experienced a 500 impact shouldn't at least be seen by a doctor at that time and two hours later and two days later. That is prudent player welfare, conservative management. Yeah, I guess the I guess the the ultimate piece of success is when somebody is taken off the field through this technology and then is then proven to be concussed, so, who then otherwise without this technology would not have been so found out. In the women's XV competition back in October November, that was played in three different locations around the world, there were three cases of concussion that were identified like that. There were ten concussions in that tournament were identified via the typical means where the player presents on field or afterwards with some sort of concussive signs but there were three instances where a concussion was identified in a player purely because of the mouth guard so that's three out of 13 mm-hmm. yeah. so that's a it is a, re- a real 20 to 30 percent increase and i don't know if it'll be the same in the men we'll, we'll have to see over time but that is the point right is can you put players into the sc- diagnostic process who otherwise would have been missed yeah and we think the answer is yes yeah the other the other big benefit is 
and it's the same in this BBC article. They, they interview a former player called Alex Popham who goes on about the training load and we've got to manage players' impacts mm. in training. How is the sport ever going to understand what the training burden is unless it can measure it using these devices? Mm. It's impossible. You've got 14 teams in France, 10 in England, 16 teams playing Super Rugby. There's a bunch of teams in South Africa, a couple in, in Wales, four in Ireland. How does the sport possibly understand what is happening on a global scale in training if this kind of tech isn't usable? And so that's why, that's why it was so important to get this introduced. We will try in the next 18 to 24 months to, to describe what an elite player experiences in training. And mm -hmm. then once you know what they are doing, you can start making suggestions about what not to do. Mm. It's quite frankly remarkable. I, I mean, we've had many discussions about this, but it's amazing to think that we, you can do so much with, with, with I guess, logically quite a simple technology. I mean, I know there's lots of, to make the mouth guards is a technological marvel in itself, but the mm. fact that you can actually measure all this stuff and get so much data from this quite small device is incredible, really. Yeah, it is. Uh, Knowing what it means is another story. <laughs> yes, no, for sure. I mean, there's And no I mean, honestly, in five years' time, Mm. If if we get this, so so far in the Six Nations, we've, we're getting about a thousand head acceleration events per game because we've got all the players now, not all, but some have medical exemptions, but the use is large. And so we're getting a lot of data points. We, we will get over the course of the next two to three years in 700 matches, we, we, we will sure. have close to a million data points to work with and potentially a thousand concussions to analyze. That's a data set that's never existed before. And then you can in, just literally plot that. On and a, then, yeah. you see, and then what you can do is you can go find really smart people who understand artificial intelligence and machine learning, and you can start running that through there so they can start predicting when you'll get a clinical case. Then the diagnostic potential go, starts to go up. It never, be, it never takes over from the human eye and the clinical judgment and suspicion and assessment of doctors, but I do think it can improve a lot. And <laughs> so that's eventually where you want to start getting to. Cycling is now, there's a story on Cycling News where they've discussed a little bit about what the potential is for this to be used in cycling. And this mm. comes on the back of an incident that happened a couple of days from when we were doing this podcast with Adam Yates at the UAE Tour where he had a very bad crash. I mean, there was a video of it and you just see him literally poleaxed. There was um, some discussion as, as to whether somebody ahead of him had hit a, a cat eye. But he literally goes from you know, being up on his bike to being slammed on the ground, like body slammed, and then taken off, what, 30 k's later or so. Mm. And there's a discussion about using the technology, the accelerometers, um, obviously not in mouth cards because you couldn't do that in cycling, but you <laughs> could use them in helmets. And there is already some of that technology, and they're specialized. I've actually had one of these devices in my helmet. There's an accelerometer that you can put on your helmet, which then sends a message to a loved one if you do have a big crash. Mm. Um, so the technology exists for that to happen, and I guess it's it's not a big jump to suggest that that could happen relatively quickly and easily. Yeah, they would just have to go in with their eyes wide open mm. about what the limitations are of having it in the helmet. Because mm. the helmet moves independent of the head. Mm. And so the actual measurement you get from the helmet is not always going to reflect what happens to the head and thus the brain. And so the idea of setting thresholds, we've already discussed now in this very discussion, why thresholds will never be diagnostic for concussion in rugby because there is no golden optimal threshold you know 65 does not equal concussion sometimes 45 does sometimes 85 doesn't so so when you add in the measurement error when it's done at the helmet to that that diagnostic 
use becomes even less effective. So they would never be able to diagnose a concussion based on it. But Just then again, because it's not as direct as a mouth guard, for instance. Yeah, and even even when the mouth guard is direct, there's still so many other factors. Yeah. You know, we know that the direction of the impact, whether the player or in this case cyclist is braced for impact, will affect the head acceleration. If I snuck up behind you and sucker punched you in the back of your head, the acceleration I measure would be greater than if you saw me coming and braced for contact. Yeah, and so the same force, the same impact, can cause two different things. Um, the degree of fatigue potentially could change that. So like there's lots of modifiers and that's why there is no single concussion threshold ever established with any device, let alone a helmet, let alone a mouth. But in a way that can do the same as you. I mean, not that you have a huge amount of concussions in cycling generally, but if you had a whole, if you had these devices in every helmet, you would then be able to track how many of these potential, if somebody was concussed, what were the results of that in their helmet mm. in terms of what it showed? And then you could say, well, based on AI, which you've already alluded to, yeah. you can then say, right. based on that, there's a good chance that somebody has concussion. I mean, it sounded and like in the case of, I mean, it would be fascinating to know what the results of a device like that would have been in Yates's helmet because that was a hot hit. And I imagine <laughs> if that was rugby and that had come back on that device in rugby, he would have been taken off the field. Yeah, most uh, likely. Uh, possibly, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. When I <laughs> when I had my little spill in December, all my mates became comedians. They said, "Hang on, can you show us the mouth guard data for your accident?" Because <laughs> it and it would have been cool to know. Like, hey, was yeah. I was I sixty five or was I one hundred and fifteen? So I think the, I think though that you've landed on the best principle that they need to follow is: can we identify significant head impacts using a helmet, mm. as opposed to the pl- the, the riders crashed? but hasn't hit the head, Mm. right? That would be an interesting filtering exercise to say there are certain crashes where we don't have to do a comprehensive clinical screen and some that we do. If we've had... The obvious thing is even without an accelerometer, if the helmet breaks, you must screen. That seems logical to me, right? For sure, yeah. If the helmet doesn't break, it doesn't mean you don't have to screen. And maybe the accelerometer can help triage after a crash. Who needs... uh, cursory check and who needs a significant one i suppose the 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 wealth the conservative welfare-minded approach would say every crash should be screened and why would you ever use something that could deny a cyclist a, a medical screen a clinical assessment when there's a potential for there to have been a brain injury like surely everyone should be screened but maybe there's a way that they can focus that screen and screen different things based on what they get out of the head uh, the accelerometer so mm. that's that's the direction i would think that they would want to go in that with respects yeah. to that, yeah. I mean, we have seen. I mean, in in, in the history of cycling, we people see people like Roman Bardet. Um, he rode ninety kilometers while he was concussed. Um, Tom's Tom Scoines was in a crash in Tour of California in twenty seventeen. Another one that. So yeah, there's and, a video. Remember, there's a video of Chris Horner rolling across yeah. the line and asking his manager, "Did I win?" Yes, and he was like, he was, he was nowhere Something's near wrong winning. Yeah, buddy. But like, did I win? And even the Yates one that happened now, okay, a week ago. The apparently the team car didn't see it, but then Yates asked them what happened back then. <laughs> She's sure. okay, maybe. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's a classic example. Like that's a clinical sign. Mm. Can the accelerometer decrease the time it takes to know that that sign exists? That's the question they have to ask. Mm. So instead of going on for thirty-seven kilometers because of the circumstances of the race, denying them visibility of Yates's crash, can they know almost immediately that there's a potential here? 
to discover that clinical sign. That's that's what the mouth code's being used for in rugby. Is let's get the guy into a system or the woman into a system that identifies that can cycling do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll keep a close eye on that. And uh, I think there's obviously lots of different um, applications of this technology, I think, in lots of different sports potentially down the road. So this could be sort of a, a bit of a, a time in the world of sports science where this kind of technology is, is rolled out. Moving on to something which um, and I'll quote Carl Lewis um, when he <laughs> heard about the news. And it's probably the best quote before I even tell you what it's about. But it says, and I'll just tell you here, Carl Lewis says, you're supposed to wait until April 1st for April Fool's jokes. Now, this relates to a proposal, and it is only a trial and proposal at the moment, where there is going to be a change in the way that long jump is done. Instead of having a line, which jumpers hit before, they are now potentially creating a zone where jumpers can jump. Now, I mean, maybe you can explain it a bit better than I can, because it's a radical change. Mm. It, it changes the sport massively, doesn't it? Yeah, for a few reasons. It takes away the requirement to, well, you still have to measure out a run-up, but it takes away the precision of that requirement. Yeah. And that has all kinds of knock-on effects. The most obvious of those is that a lot of times an athlete who's running down and really reaching for a long jump is going to overstep but produce like a monster jump, and now they're saying, well, that'll count. Because as long as that athlete is in the zone, we're going to measure it from where they take off. Even now, you'll often see an 8.42, let's say, jump in the men's competition, or let's call it a 6.05 in the women. And then they'll show that snap, they'll show that freeze frame at takeoff, mm. and you'll see that the athlete's 16 centimeters behind the board. Ooh, actually, that was an 8.58. That was a 6.22. Now it becomes an all-time jump instead of just a good one. Mm. And so they are banking on that elevating the entertainment and the prestige and the interest in long jump and so that, that's that's why that I, I assume doing it. and i don't know how what it look like they've spoken about trialing it's almost like a shadow trial mm. so presumably they will use the tech to see how quickly you can provide the measurement from the point of takeoff to the landing point and then if it works and if the athletes are happy then they're talking about rolling this out what's interesting is that world Athlete, and this isn't some sort of radical group that's proposing this is world athletics so let's start this is the body that does decide on these things and they said that the data from last year's world championships in budapest revealed that a third of attempts ended in no jumps as mm. competitors tried to push the limits on the board um, and then it takes away and this is the critical part of this because understanding the context of world athletics in terms of being entertainment and also attracting crowds, et cetera, et cetera. He said, it is something that World Athletics believes takes away from the entertainment of the event. And when I read that part, when I read that, I thought, actually, personally, that makes sense to me because I absolutely agree with you. It's unbelievably frustrating watching long jump. The guys hit the board. They're just an inch over disallowed. Half the jumps are disallowed. And I think this potentially, if you're looking at the policy of faster, further, longer, which is really like an Olympic code, should we not be measuring how long, the longest that people can jump as opposed to how accurate they are to a point <laughs> yeah. on the track? So, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the argument they're making, right? And that, that, that would be, there was a really interesting um, series of videos posted on Twitter by Jasmine Sawyers, who is a former Commonwealth medalist, I think silver, and won European indoors last year, talking about pros and cons. And clearly that's the main pro. That's the main upside they're looking for. I'll offer you a counterpoint. Sometimes the most intrigue that exists in long jump and similarly triple jump is when a big favorite has no jumped a couple times. 
and you know that they are now jumping to survive and they have to get that bit right. And so the, there's, a, there's a skill execution component to long jump that actually creates drama. It might not create entertainment, but it creates drama. Whether you believe those two things are synonymous or not, maybe is a matter of subjective perception. But I can see both sides of that argument. Carl Lewis said in another tweet, you might as well make the basket larger in basketball so that more free throws get made. That doesn't quite work because the point of a free throw is accuracy. The point mm. of long jump is long, not accuracy. So I can see why a long jumper might, you know what I'm getting at? Is well, it, it, Lewis, it, Lewis is saying make the basket bigger. Yes, it would be I mean, the same. I'm, I'm one it's of those not people the same who believes thing. that it's a, not the same thing. I believe that a soccer goal should be bigger because you'd have more goals and that would be good for soccer. So <laughs> I'm but from the that school is, of thinking. So, okay, so the point in scoring a goal is not, it's, it's accuracy. So if you made it bigger, you'd actually reduce the fundamental requirement of the task. Basketball, if you made it bigger, you'd make the fundamental requirement of the task simpler. The, d the demand for precision would drop. This doesn't change the fundamental task of long jump. And that's why I think this is a little bit different to those examples, is the point I'm trying to mm. get at. This is about, and I think you were saying it earlier, is this is about how long can you jump, not yes. how precisely can you jump from a specific point. Mm. So you're now arguing in favor of this particular rule change. Yeah, I am. Mm. Yeah. Which is interesting because i don't know if that's where you started off in this discussion <laughs> when we first like looked at it i've, I've reviewed my thoughts and it's, your your and no it's not ambivalence but your change is reflective a little bit of what's happening on discourse uh, i posted this and in in response gareth said i'm torn joshua said i'm torn i think martin hawkins came on and said i don't mind this change at all i'm quite happy with it so there is a there was a split among our Patreon followers on discourse with about it as well. One other thing to think about is the, the technology that's required to measure the length of a jump from takeoff point to landing point is way, way, way beyond what would be available in most club, school, and development level competitions. Mm. So the, the requirement for long jump would change as you reached a certain level, which is an interesting one to think about. Like you, you would have to learn a skill component for takeoff that would then almost well it wouldn't almost it would disappear once you became an elite long jumper is that a problem or not i don't know yeah so the world athletics ceo john ridgden he was talking to a podcast called anything but footy is widely widely quoted in the story on the independent groups so i have a look out for it but uh, he kind of explains the fact that it's going to be something that's going to take two years to be tested if they don't think it's going to work they're not going to just make the change on a whim and they're kind of uh, trying to find ways to reduce the, the dwindling audiences that are happening in world athletics which i think is all and, very and they've, good yeah. they've tinkered before with the field of Events. Remember, there was a point at which they gave, they cut down the number of jumps that you got. It used to be three jumps, best three go through and get another three. And then for a year or two, they had one sort of sudden death jump off and only that last jump counted. And the athletes absolutely hated it for obvious reasons. You could, you could be 30 centimeters clear of your rival. And then in the last round, they jump one centimeter further than you in the last round. But you're both 25 centimeters shorter than your best <laughs> and you lose even though on the night you were way better. So mm. they have tinkered before with these competitions and it hasn't worked. So it'll be interesting to see whether this one works. I, I like the idea of a, an athlete being able to give it absolutely everything in terms of the maximum amount of time that he, the time in the air and distance that he can go. And if he's giving it everything now, subconsciously, and I 
I'm not a long jump athlete at all, but I'd imagine that the consideration that you have to get as close to that so, mark means you're going to not give it absolutely everything to get the maximum distance. Whereas yeah. this gives them the chance to say, right, we want you to fly and as far and as high as you can go yeah, yeah, yeah. without having to worry no, about No constraints. Else. No constraints. And that's, that's what I said was the most interesting thing about this is it'll be really interesting to discover what the size of that constraint actually was. Mm. Because let's let's say... The first thing you you would anticipate, and I think it's fairly obvious, is that the average long jump performance will be increased by this rule change because there's a direct effect of changing the measurement point from the board to the takeoff point. So if the average jump was four centimeters behind the board, every long jump ever made would increase by, on average, four centimeters. So if the current men's average is 8 to 12 and the current women's average is 583, the true distance is 816 and 587 because yes. that's just because of the that's just because of the measure the direct benefit of measuring it from takeoff versus board makes sense but now is there an additional advantage that is accrued because the athlete no longer has to think about m- meeting that mark mm. is it is that one percent because that's eight centimeters for the men and it's six mm. centimeters for the women is it two percent in which case we could regularly see 860s, 870s moving forward. I'm really interested to see that because it makes sense, right, that there's two parts to how performance will improve. The one is direct and the other one is indirect. Mm. It'll be interesting to see. Mm. Did did the requirement to hit the mark actually cut the length of the jump down? Yeah. By 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 virtue of forcing the athlete to slow down, chop that stride, look down, maybe being able to look up means that you can get the body the center of gravity up faster than you previously had does it change the nature of the way you train the sport that last three steps into the board do they change biomechanically moving forward that'll be really like they must i hope they do this i hope they set cameras up and they say here's a before and they say i want to see how fast it takes to break the world record what's the average stride length in the last four steps before the jump now with a zone as opposed to a board has it increased by three centimeters or is it the same mm-hmm. maybe some athletes it's the same because they were just really good at ignoring the board maybe some athlete increased a lot because they couldn't and it changes who wins yeah there are some athletes i agree there are some athletes so, that might fall by the wayside others mm-hmm. that will absolutely excel mm. yeah. there was some discussion and discourse by the way about how the long jump records have stagnated mm. And they haven't gone anywhere, and and whether athletics is looking to make this change because they actually want to nudge the event forward, they want to get over nine meters and up into the. Mm. Did I, have, I, have I been talking about the woman jumping five something? No, you think six? I think you said five, but it's whatever. Yeah, six. I meant six yeah. something, and yeah, yeah, up to seven, yeah. seven and a half yeah. meters yeah. is what I meant yeah. to say. My bad. No, that's fine. Sold them short by fifteen percent. <laughs> Yeah, so that's going to be interesting to watch. I guess, I mean, I'd imagine if this is trialed, you'll see it on triple jump. I don't think you can do it in other events like any of the throwing events, for instance. I mean, you don't want to throw the, the Where javelin. Where would you measure you it from? Well, no, you, you, know, you hard, have the eh? zone. You know, you've mm. got to be careful of the javelin, otherwise you might throw your javelin into the crowd. So, <laughs> But like, but I mean, like, yeah, you, long jump and triple jump have discrete takeoff points. Yeah, they javelin do, yeah. doesn't have a discrete throwing point. Even if your foot no. is in a specific, you don't measure it from the foot anyway. Well, you, so, you measure, yeah, you measure it from that the the line at the end of the runway. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. the javelin's face ends up on that line, not yeah. the foot. In fact, yeah. almost always it's they're well behind that. So yeah, I, I think hammer throw the same. And also, if this is worth 
five to ten centimeters what's that in an 85 meter throw yeah it's nothing whereas yeah. in a long jump it's actually significant significant yeah 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 so that's an interesting one we'll keep an eye on that and look out for it on the various uh, sporting wire that's going to be interesting to see what happens there right on to our topic of the day ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So this is a subject um, which often baffles me because uh, it's one of those subjects. In fact, last night, as it happened, I actually did a test on my little watch and it told me what my VO2 max was. And it said that it was 45, which it said on my watch was fair. Um, but that was after being quite fatigued from two days of quite hard riding. So I don't know whether that's a good or bad or average. I don't know. It shouldn't. If it's a valid measurement, it shouldn't be affected by that. No. Well, yeah. there we go. So 40, 45 yeah. is apparently my VO2 max, according to my on-wrist That's device. a resting. That's, sorry, that just interrupts. That's the you. resting rest. So you basically lie quietly at rest lie and quietly. it's measuring... Yeah, I've, I've never. I don't honestly. I don't know how valid that estimate is, but yeah. But yeah okay. Anyway, I'll, I'll I'll go with that because there's no. I'm not going to be able to get into a lab anytime soon to figure that out. But this is a discussion that happened via our discourse channel, and I'll just give you a bit of uh, background here because uh, it came from one of our um, patrons, uh, Squibbage. And uh, I think it's how you pronounce his name on our patron channel. And he's talking a bit about the fact that he's targeting a 245 marathon. And he asks a lot of questions about VO2 max. But in, in essence, what he's, he's saying is VO2 max is a therefore a measurement. How can he maximize his VO2 max? What are the changes that happen well, when it comes to VO2 max? In other words, can you improve it? Um, and how much of an effect does it have on performance yeah, overall. So, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a huge topic. Yeah, so his his specific framing was like, my marathon performance is limited by, among other things, my VO2 max. Yeah. So that, and that is the case. Like the, the, the if we think of VO2 max as the size of the engine, the world's best long distance runners, cross country skiers, rowers, cyclists, have very large engines. You know, the ability... Well, can we just define what VO2 max is then? Yeah, so we... literally it's it's oxygen consumed by the body per minute or per kilogram per minute, however you want to frame the, the, the units of it. But so, for instance, if I'm cycling or running and I'm consuming 45, in your case, at max now, 45 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight every minute. That is literally the amount of oxygen you are consume it's like fuel consumption in a car in other words it's my body's ability to consume that and somebody might be able to consume more right so the world's right. best athletes and we discussed a few weeks ago what is probably not a valid measurement but 103 in the norwegian triathlete yes. but like we, we do know that a lot of elite cyclists are in the 80s some get up to the 90s most are in the mid to high 70s similarly long distance runners the Kenyan athletes are in the 70s, sometimes creeping up to the to the 80s. And so that is one of the indicators or predictors of marathon running, cycling, endurance, sport, take your pick, performance. Yeah. It's VO2 max. Now what this post and, 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 and to figure this and to know what your VO2 max is, 
to do it accurately, you'd have to be in a lab to do this. Yeah, generally. and sometimes, as we've discovered, not even then. <laughs> right. But yes, you need a lab test because you literally have to measure that. Most often at the mouth, you just measure the oxygen in and the oxygen out, and the difference was consumed, right? If I'm taking in oh, yeah. a certain number of liters per minute and I'm breathing out, because you don't just breathe out carbon dioxide, whatever comes out, the gap, the difference between those is the oxygen. Oh, so it's actually as simple as that. In theory. Yeah. I mean, in <laughs> practice, it's has to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah. You, need, you need equipment. And like mm -hmm. the best method is still the, the old-fashioned one with these big blow-up bags. It's called Douglas bags. You've probably seen pictures yes. of guys. Yeah. It's terrible so, to see one of those. Yeah. So, so that's, that's how it's measured. There are other methods. You can measure the VO2 of a muscle specifically using other methods like more complex, advanced, sophisticated techniques. But yeah, that's basically the, the way you do it. So if you really want to know it, you get down to a lab. The estimates like you're talking about might get close. Maybe there's a 90% accuracy there, You plus or minus 10%. Mm. I don't know. Maybe some of them are better. Sometimes I'll finish a, a ride, and if it's a particularly good one, my Garmin will, well, not now, my Wahoo, it used to be Garmin, will tell me my new VO2 max estimate reached. New record VO2 max. Okay, cool. It's based that on power output, I guess, combined with heart rate and duration of the effort. Mm. So if I hit a new FTP, then in theory it means by inference that my VO2 max is going to. So there are indirect tools that can assess this but if you really want to know it you measure it and it i mean one of the things he mentions is the fact and i'm interested to know this as well can you change your vo2 max yeah, does so, it change as you get so, older or so, younger? yeah so he he talks about vo2 max being if we think about marathon performance as two three points in triangle that's the one point the next point is running economy as in if vo2 max is fuel economy at max like the maximum capacity of my engine Running economy is when I'm in cruise mode, how much fuel am I, not fuel, how much oxygen am I using? Yeah? So the lower that is, the better. You know, if I'm running at four minutes a K and I'm only using 40 mils per kilogram per minute, that's better than if I'm using 50. Right. Because they're related to one another. Makes sense, yeah? If I'm, if I'm at 40 and my max is 60, that puts me in a relatively comfortable state. If I'm 40 and my max is 50, now I'm at 80%. That's not as good. <laughs> so the max relative to the economy is probably a key interplay. And then the last one is my ability to sustain as high a percentage of max for as long as possible. And, and it's interesting. Like as high a percentage of VO2 max. A VO2 max as oh. possible. So I go off and I run or I cycle. My VO2 max is 50. How long can I go for at 40? Is it one hour? Is it two hours? The study that was done as part of the sub two hour marathon with Kipchoge and all those guys, the, the East African runners, those guys were running a marathon pace at 94% of VO2 max. So they, they were doing two hours at 94% uh -huh. of VO2 max, which is astonishing. It's the, it's the main difference between them and us is their ability to just sit at such a high percentage of VO2 max for that long. I put the... I put that paper, it's by Andrew Jones and, and, and the other researchers, and they, they talk about it, 21K an hour, how much oxygen are they using relative to max? And it's, it's like in the low 90s. It's amazing. Wow. Okay. And um, I mean, what what makes, I mean, do we know, is that genetic? Is yeah. It, is it? It's trainable to some degree, and that's mm. really the essence of the question that was asked on discourse, is what do I do about that? Uh, trainable to some degree, heavily influenced by genetic factors, Probably some things about your early life, like some of the research we did on the Kenyans, suggests that their ability to defend oxygen levels to the brain is different from what you see in, in non-East African runners. Probably the same as you see if you tested 
Alan Rupp from America had when he was at his very best, or Craig Mottram, or anyone else. It's not to say it's a Kenyan phenomenon, it's just a world-class runner phenomenon. And so th- that's really the fundamental question, is how, how do we improve if we've got these three constraints? Which one of those three things? Can we improve VO2 max? Can we make a bigger engine? Because if we could, marathon performance would go up. Same as cycling. Mm. Bigger engine means that I can use more at peak, therefore when I'm sub-peak, I'm relatively more comfortable. Yeah? Yeah. So does cycling efficiency or running economy. Maybe harder to improve, actually. Big questions about those. But the third part of that triangle is the ability to sustain a high percentage of maximum for as long as possible. Because if I can... You know, if if if, if uh, Squire Bledge <laughs> wants to run a 245 marathon, there's a requirement to, to do that. Like there's a physiological demand. And that maybe can't be met with the combination currently of VO2 max economy and percentage of max. Right. So where do you find the improvements? And if he can improve by 3%, his ability to run for 2 hours 45, as a, by 3% more at percentage of VO2 max, he gets it done. Mm. If he goes by two percent, he's running two forty eight. Right, that, that kind of that's the logic there. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, what's I said right at the start of this podcast? There are so many different measurements, and we've talked about things like FTP and cycling and peak power and heart rate and all that sort of thing. So this is now another measurement. How do we know, based on our effort level, what a VO two max level is i mean how do how do i know i'm operating at vo2 max when you talk about kipchoge and those kind of guys running at 90 percent of vo2 max what what level is that i mean it's obviously high but yeah well you don't want to borrow from them because they are like they're like aliens yes yes. they're not 45 (laughs) on the uh, vo2 max scale (laughs) if you try to do that and you literally try to do what an elite athlete does you would implode quite quickly Mm. because fatigue you'd be so far above your own threshold, you know, because one of the things, as we said, that makes them unique is that threshold capacity, the ability to run so close to max at such a high threshold. That, yeah. So you don't want to imitate. You want to learn the principle, not the <laughs> not this precision, specifics. So so, so, what was your question? Your question is, what does it actually mean for me now? Now, there's a few... Yeah, in other words, in other words f- for me to understand what VO2 max is, I need to understand... How is that relative to my heart rate, for instance? Yeah, how without is it relative to effort. Without asking you to go to the lab mm, and spend all the yeah. money on trying to get that measurement. Yeah, in other words, how, can yeah. I improve it and how can I train it? So there's a couple of interesting studies in that respect. Stephen Seiler, who's a, one of the best, I think, applied physiologists yeah, about him. training. Love him. And then certainly someone we should try and get on this podcast, mm-hmm. has written something about how does interval training prescription affect physiological and perceptual responses? And what they do here is they actually in a very large data set like they they take um they get hundreds of data sets all told over the course of 12 weeks and they do three different blocks of training they either do 16 minutes 8 minutes or 4 minute long intervals times 4 every single time so you're either doing 4 by 16 4 by 8 or 4 by 4 wow, those are long intervals there. Yeah, none of those are fun. <laughs> they're, they're only nice, and it's interesting. Like, which which one would be the hardest? I think the short intervals sometimes comes to be the hardest. Those long intervals, they are hard, but they're not quite as intimidating. Yeah, they're hard in short. a different way, right? I think the shorter ones are the one that hurts the most. Yeah, so I ask you that because they measure in the study. They measure a whole bunch of things. They measure, for instance, what's the blood lactate concentration in these different sessions? What's the rating of perceived exertion? What's the heart rate? And it's interesting. Like you're right. The 
the, the session RPE, so this is measured on a scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is basically I'm relaxed, I'm doing nothing, I'm completely at ease, and 10 is the hardest effort I've ever known. The session RPE from the 4-minute interval on average is 7.7, .7, and from the 16-minute interval 6.3. So objectively, or perhaps subjectively, but supported by the data, is the shorter interval does feel harder than the longer one. And of course, the yeah. power outputs, you know, this is cyclists, the 16-minute block is done at 3.5 watts a kilo. The 8-minute block is done at 4 watts a kilo. And this 4-minute block is done at 4.3. So, yeah, obviously, the shorter you go, the harder you go. Mm -hmm. The heart rate, interestingly, doesn't differ. Because once you reach a certain exercise intensity, the heart, so it's a slightly different. You know, like if you look here, the heart rate peak is uh, 89%, 91%, 94%. But the mean is 86, 88, 89. So they small differences right so, so what they're saying is that even though the interval is longer uh, some of the intervals are longer the heart rate still is is as high as the shorter interval not quite but close not quite, not, but close a lot I'm, flatter. I'm actually surprised by that it's a lot flatter there than mm. it is from the, than when you than when you look at certain other mm. measurements like for instance lactate lactate here um the 16 minute one they end up with 4.7 the eight minute blocks 9.2 and the four minute one's 12.7 so that's a that's a th almost threefold difference between the short and the long, whereas in the heart rate we're talking four beats out of two hundred. So it's a much mm. because, that, and that's just an indication that there's a certain exercise intensity beyond which it's just hard, you mm. know. And the heart rate's going to reflect that intensity, mm. but metabolically it's a little bit different. So why am I telling you all this? I suppose I'm telling you this because one of the purposes of this paper was to see whether what what metrics can be, be used to guide training most effectively and. In the conclusion to this, and again, we'll put it in the show notes, they actually have a sentence here saying, Session RPE is a very practical, easily acquired global indicator of training exertion that matches reasonably well with physiological markers. Okay, just, so, to, ra just to explain RPE, rate of perceived exertion. Yeah, correct. Eh? so that's that. And I said, there's so a few it's scales. Your own, it's your own perception of how hard you're going. Yeah, there's a couple of scales in this particular paper. The session RP they measure using the 1 to 10 scale. Whereas, and I just said a moment ago, 10 is like maximal. That's as hard as I can possibly go. And 1 is I'm doing very basically nothing. And so, yeah, they, they end up with like a session RP of like 8 for the 4-minute block, 7 and 6, more or less. And it's I always remember like we used to always use 7 as kind of like an anchor point because 7 was the point at which it, it goes from being hard to very hard. It's like right in between. So I wouldn't describe this as very hard, but it's not hard either. Mm. <laughs> it's between hard and very hard. That's kind of like a So subjective. seven would be like your hour pace. Uh, by the end, yeah. FTP kind but of by pace. By the end. But this, yeah. this is where it gets really interesting because mm. in the first four or five minutes of a 16-minute set, you're going to feel pretty good. By the last four or five minutes, you're not going to feel so great. Mm. So the RP is very affected by the duration. It increases over the course of the course of the bouts and they've got graphs that show that so so by the end of bout four for instance the 16 minute block ends up at like 16 this is a different scale now this is from six to 20 the the four minute bout ends up at 18 and a half 19 so hmm. this whereas they whereas in the first bout they, they end up at 15 so it goes up over time and it goes up over the sets but the point i think they're making is that you can use session rpe as a way to try and guide this without worrying about heart rates and VO2 max and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of like hinting at how you can control this. Because the question you're asking is, how do I know when I'm training at or near my VO2 max? 
given that for some people that's something they can do for an hour, for other people it's something they can do for 10, 15 minutes. So it gets quite tricky to prescribe training on that basis. But RPE, they're saying, does it well enough given it's no is cost. It, is it practical then? And I'm trying to think of practical examples so I understand kind of what that research is telling us. That if I'm going along on my bike or I'm running or whatever it is, and I find that I'm slowly running out of the oxygen needed to sustain that particular effort, then I am going slightly over my VO2 max. Whereas if I'm able to run at a pace which is just keeping me within the, in other words, I'm staying within the zones of being able to have enough breath and oxygen to keep going at this pace, I'm close to that VO2 max. I mean, um, is, it, is that oversimplification of it? Yeah, a little, a little bit, um, because it, it's not, it, you don't fall off a cliff, you know, physiologically. It's, yes, not, it's no. not like I go and then suddenly I'm no good anymore. You know, like there's actually a spectrum of intensities and it's even relevant to the fuel discussion we had. It's the same concept. It's like you don't suddenly become a carb burner. It's all fats, then it's all carbs. Like it's a continuum, right? Mm. It's the same with intensity and oxygen supply. It's not like you go from being quite comfortable and then all of a sudden like this is unsustainable and I need to stop. So, and, and the other thing about that is that VO2 max is like the, so quite tricky to explain because it's almost like it's it's like the endurance ceiling mm. but you can go faster than that so when you sprint for like one two minutes you're going to go at a percentage of 120 130 percent of your two max. yes but you're going to drop off very that. fast yeah there's a limit to how quickly you can mm. how, how long you can sustain that but there's also a limit below vo2 max it's mm. not like vo2 max represents the steady state exercise remember there's a concept which we've discussed before around functional threshold power or critical power that's defined as the power that you can sustain okay now we again i'll refer listeners back to the podcast we did on that it's i think it's called what the ftp what the ftp, yeah. what the FTP. um so, so we can, in cycling, for instance, and in running, by the way, it's the same thing. It's just called critical velocity instead of critical power. It's what's the velocity I can run at in quasi-steady states, a sort of semi-steady state for a prolonged period. Whether that's 20 minutes or 45 minutes depends on your method of measuring it. There's very subtle things that change there. But as a concept, critical power or critical velocity is steady state, long duration. Does that make sense? Yeah. VO2 oh. max is harder than that. Okay. So... Your FTP is lower than your VO2 max power. Your critical velocity is lower than your VO2 max velocity. Right, okay. So VO2 right. max, once you start getting to VO2 max, you're talking pretty short durations before you're fatigued. You know, like that's, that's like 10 minutes. Most, five to 10 minutes, most people at VO2 okay. max won't be able to go much longer well, than that. That's quite practical to understand it yeah. that way. Yeah, so it is hard. And, and, and what, hard, the eh? like, is, what the research is suggesting is that the more time that you, that you are in that zone... Um, you can improve that. In other words, you can. Get yeah, a so it's bit interesting. Like in that respect, you know, and I found a couple of papers. The one, the one. Let me just see if I can pull it up here so that I can read to you instead of making it up and getting it wrong. Uh, a meta-analysis that was published a few years back: VO2 max trainability and high-intensity interval training in humans. And so they they go and they do a systematic review and a meta-analysis, and they find uh, dozens of studies, like loads of these papers, seventy odd. And they look at how much different training types change the VO2 max. You know, is continuous low-intensity training better than high-intensity interval training? And they find a total of 334 participants from 37 studies that eventually make the cut, grouped into 40 distinct training groups. 
an increase in VO2 max of half a liter per minute was observed on average. So you can improve it, but naturally, sure, if, you're, a lot. if you're already a world-class or a highly trained athlete, your ceiling for improvement is really small. Mm. If you're coming sedentary, then it's going to be a bit larger. A subset of studies, nine with four, 72 subjects that featured longer intervals, showed even larger changes in VO2 max with evidence of marked response in subjects. So longer high-intensity intervals are effective at increasing VO2 max. Then a paper that was actually shared to me by a friend of the pod, Marcel Guarini, who three episodes back mm-hmm. gave uh, us some time. Professional He's actually, mountain biker? Yeah, like mm-hmm. part-time resident in Stellenbosch. And he was <laughs> absolutely like <laughs> delighted that we called him an academic mountain biker. Because <laughs> apparently his, his, his uh, partner, Samantha, thinks he's anything but academic. <laughs> he's probably going to be mad with me for saying this. But I will say again that he's an academic mountain biker. And he shared with me this study. It's a study out of a Norwegian group called The Higher Fraction of VO2 Max During Interval Training, The Greater Gains in Performance. So when you do intervals, if your objective is to improve performance at high intensities... The, the it seems like the main objective is that you want to spend as much time as possible at as close an intensity as possible as your VO2 max. So you could go do 10 times 2 minutes and each of those 2 minutes wouldn't really get you to VO2 max because they're too short. You don't mm. spend enough time at high intensities to get up there. Right. Even though the power output might be really high, your oxygen cost demand... Isn't it, does that make sense? Yeah. Similarly, if I go three times 20 minutes, I'm doing a lot of volume, but the intensity will never really be high enough to get me into that zone. So somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot at which you're spending as much time as possible at VO2 max. And there are a number of studies that have looked at how you can maximize time at or near VO2 max. For instance, he, he alluded to it when we interviewed him. You can do 30-second sprint, 15-seconds recovery for 45 minutes. Because every 30-second sprint ramps your metabolic rate up, your oxygen cost goes up, you recover for 15, you go up. You go Now, for the first 5-10 minutes, you're not at VO2 max. But after 10 minutes of doing that, mm. you're probably going to be at VO2 max. And then you're going to stay there because the 15-second recovery doesn't give you enough metabolic recovery to come down. Yeah, makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah. Brutal session. I've mm. tried it <laughs> after, <laughs> like horrible. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. In fact, he's even said to me as well, it's like that session is so costly. I think neuromuscularly it's so mm. costly that it's actually quite hard to recover from and do often. So the session that a lot of people have used, and it's based, I think, well, this study tests it. It's, this was published in the Journal of Science and Cycling, is four or five times eight minutes. Because eight minutes is long enough that you have time to get that oxygen consumption, the metabolic rate, and therefore the oxygen demand up. But it's also short enough that the intensity is so high that you get close to VO2 max. Do you, does that trade-off make sense? Yeah. Too short, not enough time, even though intensity is too high. Too long, not enough intensity. I think that's for you. I'll put that on the, on the silent mode. Yeah. <laughs> Too, too long equals not enough intensity, even though duration's there. So somewhere there's a sweet spot. And so this, this particular study says 22 cyclists, good cyclists, VO2 max 67. So that's like one level below the elite guys would be right at, right? And over nine weeks, they did 21 interval sessions. So it's two or three a week. <laughs> I suppose I only, I'm trying to figure out how to switch my phone off, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the silent that you said you would be... <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, carry on. Just if you didn't know that this was recorded live without <laughs> edits, exactly. you do know. Exactly. <laughs> Where was I? 22 participants, two to three sessions a week uh, of, in this study, five times eight minutes. And the session, those eight minute blocks are done at a power output of average power output corresponding to the individual's 40 minute maximal power output. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the anchor here is what's the power output I can sustain for 40 minutes? And I'm now going to do five times eight at that power. So to come back to your earlier question is that's most most cyclist runners would know what it means to do like a 40 minute. It's like a 10K pace for a runner. Most of us, mm-hmm. unless you're super fast, right? For a cyclist, it's a long climb. That's like a 10K relatively steep climb. It's a 6K very steep climb or you get the idea. Yeah. So 40 minute power output. And you're going to now do five times eight minutes at that power output. And what they did in this particular study was to measure the oxygen consumption the whole time. And in the end, they relate over the course of nine weeks, how much did the cyclists improve their power output max? How much did they improve their power output at the lactate threshold? How much did they improve performance indications or indices that they describe? And what they find is that the more time you spend at a high percentage of VO2 max, the greater your improvements in performance are. Does this make sense? Yeah. So the cyclist who spent upwards of 86, 87, 88, 90% of VO2 max get bigger improvements in power output, bigger improvements in performance indices, bigger improvements even in VO2 max. Some of these guys improve their VO2 max by five, six milliliters per minute per kilogram, which is quite a lot when you consider they were already pretty well-trained good athletes to begin with yeah so the moral of the particular of this particular story is that the more time you can spend when you do hard interval training the more time you spend at as close to vo2 max as possible the greater your gains in your high performance domains are going to be so you can improve vo2 max you can improve peak power what did you say in terms of how you how much of your vo2 max can you improve i mean I mean, is, is it is it significant enough for even to take this whole thing seriously at all? Unless you're Masagarini, I mean, if you if you're saying yeah, that yeah. highly yeah. trained athletes can move it by half a, I'd say especially if you're uh, Lo- the lower end, not Masagarini. <laughs> no, if you're not, okay, all right. Like okay. you know, the, I think the gains that are there to be had for you and I, who never really put ourselves through this, because five times eight minutes at mm. at forty minutes, it's horrible. It's mm. hard. Eh? Like, it's really hard. We avoid those things because it interferes <laughs> exactly. with the coffee stop. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So yes, they are. Like as as with most things in physiology, you're going to have high responses and low responses to it. I mean, there are some famous studies where you take sedentary people, can people who are basically off the couch with VO2 mm. maxes in the 30s, and you say, "Here's an exercise program for eight to 12 weeks. Go for it and come back." and And then they measure them, and they haven't improved, <laughs> mm. despite the fact that they're now training and they never used to. They still don't get better. So you get you get people who don't respond to certain types of training, and then other times you get people who respond enormously, and they get 40 percent better within eight weeks. You okay. Know? So as so, as so, with, it is, as, so if you are serious about improving this, it, oh, yeah. there is room for improvement for yeah, sure it's, defi- not, it's not small percentages that all the suffering is going to be worth it's it actually not trivial it no, certainly okay. is not insignificant what you can get from this if you if you apply mm. yourself to do it okay as i say some of these these cyclists here you got guys that improve by 10 percent their vo2 max now to come back to our question if if square bledge can improve by 10 percent, that's the 245 marathon mm. 
So my ten percent is make, taking me to fifty as opposed to forty-five. And you'll notice that's a that's a significant difference. That mm. will improve your ability. So let's say, give you an example how this plays out is like if you if you're at forty-five, and we now work out that we want to climb a, a famous climb here in Cape Town. It's a short one. Maybe it's not the best one, but one of the longer ones, like Red Hill. It's a twelve-minute effort. Yeah. So okay, my goal is to go twelve minutes. There's a certain power output you're going to need to do that, mm. right? At your current weight. Look, okay, we know this is the power output requirement. In order to power that, there's a certain oxygen delivery requirement. And at the moment, let's say for argument's sake, that oxygen delivery is 43 moles per kilogram per minute. It's not happening because we're asking you to do, in fact, let's make it even easier. It's 48. Physiology wins. Yeah, exactly. It's 48. <laughs> so we'd, it's for, in order for you to do that now, you'd have to be above VO2 max for 12 minutes. Not happening. Yeah. So therefore, the only thing we can do is we've got to improve that VO2 max. And so we say, let's get that to 50, 51 and then, okay, now it becomes possible that you can hold a percentage of VO2 max for the 12 minutes and get that climb done in that time. So that's so the way you, the way you unlock that climb is, in your case, is probably to improve capacity. Oh dear, <laughs> which means I have to do these sessions at some point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or these, think these about hard it sessions as part of a structured training. And they are really yeah. hard. Like you go there for, f- and I, okay, yeah. so f- it's your 40 minute power output. Yeah. So what do you think you could go out and ride at for 40 minutes or run at for 40 minutes? Your 10K speed, for instance, would be a good, for most of us who can run, like if you're, if you're a reasonable runner and you go to 40 to 40, 50 minute 10K, it's your 10K pace. Mm. What we're saying here is you're going to go out and do four times eight to 10 minutes at 10K pace with a relatively short recovery. What, mm. you know, two minutes to five minutes, doesn't really matter. Mm. The key is run the pace because that's going to put you so close to VO2 max that you are going to get the benefits that have been described now. <laughs> the, the word of caution is that these are hard sessions because it's 10K pace. It's your 40-minute it's your cycling power output. And if you overplay it, you very quickly run yourself or ride yourself into fatigue, mm. potential injury, overtraining. So you have to earn the right to do the session. Mm. Remember Stuart McMillan gave us mm. one of the two like catchphrases that we live by. The one is fuel for the work required by Graham Close, mm-hmm. and the other one is earn the right to do more. Mm. That's what physiology is about, is the earn it first. So these things aren't in isolation. I mean, essentially, no, you it's not part of, of a structured plan. And if you don't have a significant base underneath you, you don't go and do five of these no. at five times eight minutes tomorrow, you'll be finished, you'll be mm. rinsed out. Mm. What you do instead is you go out and you do two times eight minutes and you see if you can add a third one add a fourth one or you go and do three times five minutes and then you build it to four times five four times six four times eight five times eight done mm. you know, so see so you systematically earn the right mm. to do the session yeah and and see what happens you know and, then, and the thing is this is not a session that's only going to improve vo2 max it's going to improve other elements of your riding ability as well because it's just a so training stimulus is high yeah so that's what you try and base it on yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, I know that there's so much more around VO2 max and we could potentially touch on these sort of subjects as you go forward. But I think it's a great way of looking at it. And it's a, it's a it's a measurement, which I think most people, you know, people kind of work just on heart rate and FTP and that kind of thing. But it's quite a nice discussion because I kind of feel a bit inspired myself to try some of these sessions. I know they seem hard, but I can see myself doing two by four minutes or two by eight minutes and actually realizing there is a benefit to that because we're either told you've either got to go flat out for a minute or ride really easy. But there is something about that Mm. long interval that you can't ignore. Yeah. Because there is a real benefit to it. Yeah, exactly. And and they are we should definitely try and do it, you know, and Mm. there's 
you know on your rides where there's going to be a section of uninterrupted road that's going to be four to five minutes long ideally slight uphills make it easier to manage the efforts and you just want to then go and you want to hit that section and ride it and even if you just do that a couple times in a training ride and learn what it feels like mm. before you start doing it as a structured interval session, that's maybe the gateway. Because I mean, you can build it into a session in, as a, almost a fartlek. So in other words, instead of having yeah. a structured four by eight, you can do, like a, for instance, I know a ride where I've got four hills that are probably seven, eight minutes long. Yes. And if I get into that zone i'm essentially doing that session without it being overly structured yeah, but i'm still getting potentially the benefit and maybe that's the gateway towards mm. working your way to being able to do it as a structured session instead mm. you know yeah so that's what you do so i know for instance that the swiss cyclists would do that session and then they will me- they'll assess the accuracy of that session by doing lactate measurements mm. on because there's certain things and we don't want to get into this maybe now but where you can relate the metabolic demand, are you working at that percentage? You can sort of verify that by looking at the lactate concentration if you know what you've done before. Mm. We're not suggesting you do that. And to some extent, a lot of this is trial and error. It's saying, okay, if the session is four times eight with, say, a three-minute recovery, then can you finish it? If you finish it like at your absolute limit, you've probably gone too hard. If you finish it feeling like you'd do another one or two, you've probably gone too easy. Mm. And you just got to work your way through experience and RPE. And as I say, the silo paper, which you'll find in the show notes, gives you some kind of like target anchor point to work towards where when you do an eight minute session, because they've got one of those in here, your rating of perceived exertion by the end of it, after the fourth of the four eight minute reps is going to be in the range of 17 to 18 out of 20, which is probably going to be the same as an eight to nine out of 10. So it's not bleeding from the eyeballs 10 out of 10. But it's also not, this is hard, but not too hard, seven. It's mm-hmm. that point in between that you could probably Slightly do. Slightly above tempo is the way I kind of think about it in my head. Yeah, and that's like, probably not massively far for that tempo means different things to different people. Yeah. But in that in the Norwegian study, for instance. Tempo is like a t- like an hour. Yeah, a little bit less. So therefore, mm. slightly above tempo would be mm. wor- would work, mm. yeah? Because mm. in the Norwegian study, remember, it's 40 minutes. Mm. We've equated that to a 10K, which mm. is faster than tempo running yeah. pace. It's faster than mm. tempo power output and you're going to do five times eight at what you normally do 40, that's not going to be that hard. No. It's, it's uncomfortable, mm. but it's not like I'm now at, at the very ceiling of my physiological capabilities because I know I can do this in one 40-minute block. Now I'm doing five eight-minute blocks. It's mm. manageable, yeah? And there's a part of that as well, which yeah. I think also feeds into what, particularly when it comes to running and cycling, where when you're going at that speed, it's, it's, it's hard but you can maintain some level of form. You're not losing mm. your form all over the place. And, that's what and the same should. in cycling as well. You could focus to some extent on form because it's not an all-out sprint. So there's that, there's that benefit as and well. And that's what you should be. And again, I refer to the silo paper. By the, by the fourth of four times eight reps, yeah. by the end of that bout, they've got 92 to 94% of max heart mm. rate. Mm. So you know what that means for you. They've got... 17 to 18 rating of perceived exertion where 20 is max so it's not max is mm. the point it's 90 percent of max yeah 90 to 92 percent of max which should give you the context like you should feel geez this is hard but i'm in control of it i'm not yeah. hanging on for dear life yeah. yeah that's the that's the goal and we'll share all these papers and then i've got no doubt that based on what i've seen on discourse there are so many people who will be more than helpful and knowledgeable enough to share 
even more insights compared to what we've just shared here. Yeah. So have a look out for that thread uh, once this podcast goes out. You'll see a thread pop up around this via Max discussion and uh, check it out. Add to it if you've got some experience around this. But yeah, it has been an interesting discussion around it. Don't forget, you can support us on Patreon, which gives you automatic access to our discourse channel. Um, and it costs a very little amount of money, depending on which level you want to go up. You're either, what is it? Olympic champion, Olympic, Olympic legend. athlete, champion, legend. What are the three levels? So you know, what's Ath- the lowest athlete, one? Athlete, three dollars a month. Three dollars a month. Three pounds a month. Yeah, three, three pounds. pounds a month. Set up in pounds. Yes. Yeah. Athlete, then, champion, five. Legend, yeah. ten. There we go. So, Plus immortality. There we go. There we go. Professor Ross Tucker, thank you very much again for your time and for now. It's goodbye. You have been listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, and join the conversation on our exclusive Science of Sport Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.